0: I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Ronald Bayer, Professor of Sociomedical Sciences at the Mailman School of Public Health at Columbia University. Dr. Bayer has co-authored a prospective article on the recent appeals court ruling that requiring graphic warning labels on cigarette packages infringes tobacco companies' First Amendment rights. Dr. Bayer, to start with some background, what do we know about the best ways to get smokers to quit or to keep people from starting to smoke in the first place And how do these warning messages fit into that picture?
1: We've been involved in trying to get people to give up cigarettes and to stop smoking now for... It's almost half a century. In the beginning, uh, the strategy was fairly straightforward. Warn people, tell people. They don't know. And for for some, at a certain moment in our history, uh, those uh, warnings, warning cigarettes may be dangerous to your health, warnings from doctors, uh, all of that worked. It worked to a certain extent, but then it became very clear that that was not enough. And more recently, we've learned that... Uh, increasing the price of cigarettes through taxes uh, has a huge impact, and there's huge variability in the United States about whether these t- whether, uh, excise taxes are used for that purpose. We've learned that restricting uh, the places where people can smoke actually not only protects non-smokers against sidestream smoke, but uh, makes it more difficult for smokers to smoke, and some of them basically say, it's too much trouble, or I don't have enough time in the day to keep going out to smoke. So, restricting places where people smoke, uh, taxing cigarettes, and now, most recently, efforts to completely transform the public image of cigarettes and cigarette packages has emerged globally as a central feature. The United States has really been behind the curve on this issue. Many, many countries have decided to repackage cigarettes in a way that the package becomes an anti-smoking billboard. And I think we have to understand what's going on in the United States and before our courts now as part of really a global effort to confront the problem of smoking.
0: In that regard, most of the graphic labels that the FDA chose don't seem nearly as graphic as some of those used in other countries. How did we end up with the particular labels that we're looking at now?
1: I imagine there was a combination of the FDA trying to figure out uh, how far they could push in... In what was overall a very ambitious piece of anti-tobacco legislation, and once they came up with 36 possibilities, uh, they posted them, and they they actually uh, commissioned some research to, to look at the question of which images enhanced or. Weather images enhanced the strength of merely text message warnings. Uh, They reviewed the uh, research from Canada, from Australia, uh, they received more than a 1,000 public comments on their postings from the tobacco industry, from, science, from uh, anti-tobacco researchers, uh, from public health organizations. And at the end of the day, they chose uh, these nine. Now, it's interesting that you refer to them as not being as graphic uh, as uh, as what other countries have adopted, because the from the perspective of the industry and its political allies, these images which the FDA is proposing to use really are designed to uh, turn cigarette packs into a revolting commercial product. They see them as far. And it, it may be that in if in, in these... If these repackages, repackagings can actually go forward, then in time the FDA will discover that they need to change the uh, graphics because uh, they've uh, gotten old. Uh, but I think for the time being, uh, w- people concerned about public health and smoking would be very, very pleased to see these images, uh, which mark a radical break from what uh, has in fact been the case. Uh, I think uh, the uh, uh, this is viewed by public health people as a huge step forward, if not uh, if it's if not the the perfect step forward.
0: Let's look at that getting old issue. How effective have graphic warning labels been in other countries? Can they be just tuned out? Uh, are there data on those effects yet?
1: This is a very good question because the very question of what the evidence from Canada, Australia, uh, Europe uh, demonstrate about the effect- effectiveness of these ads uh, is itself the source of huge controversy. From the point of view of of the public health community and the FDA, the evidence, although not slam dunk, uh, is good enough. It's certainly good enough in terms of raising awareness, in terms of uh, grabbing attention. Uh, certainly the text-only messages which we've been using in the United States on the side of, or even on the bottom of a cigarette package, have, have uh, basically, in the language of the IOM, the Institute of Medicine, they've basically disappeared. People don't look at them. They, you know, it, it's not there. So the issue was how to make the warning there. And I think that from the point of the FDA, the, there's enough evidence to say that making these, putting these images on packages and on cigarette ads themselves will make the warning there again. Uh, now, it's interesting that in the courts that have thrown out this proposed uh, regulation and uh, for the tobacco industry, the argument is not that they're so good and so strong, but there's no justification for them because there's no social science evidence that's demonstrative. So it's an ironic thing. The bar for effectiveness, which is usually embraced by people in public health who really want to have an impact, uh, they're willing to use a, a lower bar of evidence. And the people who are opposed to these regulations are insisting on a high bar of effectiveness. Maybe it's a bar that cannot be reached. After all, the challenge for tobacco control policy now is not what does one intervention do, but what does packaging combined with taxes combined with other efforts at denormalizing smoking in public settings, how do these all work together? And to do that, we need long longitudinal studies. We need to see what happens over time. And I think from a public health point of view, the argument we need long longitudinal studies that will take a a long time to conduct and review is a non-starter, because the p- concern is 400-some-odd-thousand Americans die every year of tobacco-related causes, and we have to act now, and we have to act with the best evidence we have available, even if it doesn't make, uh, if it, even if it's not uh, prime-time evidence.
0: Nonetheless, the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, which is the court that issued this ruling, said that the government's case was built on what it called questionable social science. So, where do we go from there?
1: really have to underscore is that the reason this issue is so, is so complex in the United States is we now have two different circuit court decisions. The D.C. court, as you mentioned, said the evidence is lousy. It's bad social science. It proves nothing. The Sixth Circuit Court, which reviewed the same legislation earlier, uh, said the evidence is sufficient. And by a vote of two-to-one, upheld the legislation. That's why this is going to end up going to the Supreme Court, because you have two circuit courts who've looked at the evidence, who've looked at the constitutional law, have come to diametrically opposed positions. And uh, so, uh, for, from my point of view as an analyst of this issue, the issue is, why is there a controversy around the evidence? What does a controversy tell us about who demands what level of certitude in order to move forward on public health. And it's clear that the court in Washington was demanding a much, much higher level. The court in Washington basically adopted the posture of the tobacco industry on on the utility of the industry, and the court in uh, the Sixth Circuit Court adopted the posture of... of, uh, Uh, the public health community. It's worth noting that as the FDA makes its case, it refers not only to a number of studies, but it refers to an emerging global consensus. The World Health Organization, the Institute of Medicine, the the, uh, organizations and and, uh, agencies responsible for public health in most democratic countries have all concluded that graphic warnings uh, represent a major step forward. Now, You can say that consensus, is not science, is merely shared opinion. But I think in an area like this, the emergence of such a consensus uh, does represent a a powerful statement about good enough evidence. And I think that's where uh, the both legal and uh, social science uh, case rests.
0: Looking to a possible Supreme Court hearing of this issue, There have been other sorts of cases where the right to commercial free speech was alleged to have been infringed by something done in the name of public health. For instance, compounding pharmacies, which have been in the news lately, successfully argued before the Supreme Court in 2002 that they should not be prohibited from advertising their products. And that was just about permitted speech. The tobacco case would be about compelling the tobacco companies to say something. Does that suggest that the Supreme Court's likely to find in favor of the companies?
1: This is a a difficult crystal ball issue. The first thing it's really important to note is that the United States is unique among other democratic countries in according to advertising the status of... Protected speech, not quite the same as religious beliefs, not quite the same as political speech, but of protected speech this perspective emerged in the mid nineteen seventies It never existed before in the United states and although the you know, the path has been kind of circuitous it 's clear that over the past thirty or so so odd years. The court has increasingly made it more and more difficult to restrict speech, uh, restrict advertising, uh, in the name of public health, broadly understood. Whether it's posting of the alcohol content of of beer, or uh. so, what the issue before the court now is not simply the tobacco-specific issue. Uh, but rather how far the court is going to go in protecting commercial uh, advertising as a form of speech and whether it sees that protection as central to uh, uh, a concept of of a democratic society. Uh, I I, I should mention that I I became particularly interested in in doing this piece for the New England Journal because in mid-August, the High Court of Australia upheld... uh, Regulations and legislation which would have required the packaging of cigarettes uh, in this way, similar to what was going to happen in the United States, and 12 days later, the Circuit Court in the United States uh, came uh, ruled that this position was unconstitutional. So it demonstrates how very far uh, the United States is from mainstream democracies on this issue. And the question we have to ask ourselves is. Are we really freer? Or do we really have a more robust democratic society uh, because we protect advertising? Uh, or uh, have we gone down a bad path? Now, you said, what is the court likely to do? It's unlikely for the court to reverse its a set of doctrines that it's evolved and which has strengthened over the past 25, 30 years. Uh, So it seems to me if the court handles this, uh, it's going to have to turn on some very, very fine points. It turns out that complete suppression of speech, a ban on advertising, would actually be a much harder thing to to pass constitutionally than so-called commercial speech, which requires... A company to reveal something about its product uh, uh, in the in the domain of politics, compelled speech really raises lots of red flags. but I think we have a long history of requiring disclosure in advertising. So the question is, is this repackaging a form of disclosure which is constitutionally acceptable, or does it cross uh, some red line in making uh, interestingly the uh, uh, the court in uh, throwing this decision, this regulation out, said, We are basically making the tobacco industry on its own dime turn every cigarette package into an anti smoking billboard. Uh, and uh, I think that's true. <laughs> I think it's true, and the question is whether the court is going to see that as violative of basic. Uh, American rights, or whether it's going to side with the American Medical Association, the American Public Health Association, the Cancer Society, and saying this is well within the uh, acceptable, acceptable in terms of public health. And not only that, necessary because, as the public health community likes to say, cigarettes are a unique product. We know that hundreds of thousands of deaths a year and, and more suffering. Uh, is caused by smoking. And we know that uh, uh, there there were generations of Americans brought up with the fog of, of dissimulation and deception around cigarettes. So the position of the public health community is we have to break through all of that. And the way to break through all of that is to use bold images. Um, I wouldn't I, w- I wouldn't uh, ask Nate Silver to help me to decide this case, help me decide how the court is going to go. The court is very, very divided on it, and I think uh, it's going to be a signal case in the history of American public health when the court does confront this issue.
0: What do you think it would take to change the assumptions, the judicial assumptions, in these cases where commercial speech collides with public health?
1: Uh, It will take uh, some new justice. Uh, I, I think this doctrine is is pretty well entrenched now, and uh, I think it's uh, as I said. I think this case will be decided at the margins, but the doctrine that commercial speech represents a form of protected speech, it seems to me, that is now constitutional law in the United States, and it's going to be very hard. To to reverse that. Maybe two or three new judges in the next uh, four years, uh, depending on their perspective, would would see this. uh, I'm not sure. There's one other thing I I did want to mention and why why it makes this repackaging issue so central. Uh, Over the past decade or so, people involved in public health and and, uh, uh, the uh, effort to confront tobacco, smoking tobacco industry have struck on something that is fairly new, and that is the notion of denormalizing smoking, turning smoking from something that is normative, that everyone did. Look, when I was a, high, when I was a college student uh, a long time ago, I walked into class, I smoked, my professor smoked. Uh, you would walk into a doctor's office, doctor smoked, patient smoked. That's changed dramatically over the past decade, and it's changed in part because of rules about where you can and can't smoke. But what has happened is that uh, there's a growing body of evidence that shows that changing public norms, social norms around smoking, can have a huge impact on who begins to smoke, who chooses to give up smoking. And in some studies, denormalization and a kind of, of soft stigma around smoking has had an equal impact to raising taxes. Now, raising taxes has been about the most effective tool we have in public health to risk, to limit smoking behavior. So, what's now happening? It seems to me we're in the end game, in a way, of trying to change American social norms around smoking. Uh, some time ago, New York City, following many other communities, decided to ban smoking in parks and beaches. Uh, And when the Commissioner of Health defended this restriction, he said, parents have a right to take their children to the beach or to a park and not see someone smoking. Now, that statement, without apology, about what we need to do to change the social norms, really, I think, is the context within which we have to see this effort to repackaging. This isn't a standalone move. This is part of a public health campaign to turn... Around the tide, the cultural norms, and a habit that only took uh, took hold within the, la- the last century, with enormous toll in in uh, suffering and death. And globally, of course, the issue is even is even greater. So, I think. The way we have to think about this issue and the significance of this issue of packaging is not simply as a a tweaking, but rather as part of the armamentarium of the effort to denormalize smoking in the name of public health.
0: Let's look uh, a little more closely at the issue of taxes and and that as part of the armamentarium. In another perspective article, Baumgartner and colleagues from the Congressional Budget Office described the predicted health and financial effects of raising taxes on cigarettes. Where do you see taxes as fitting into this menu of approaches?
1: I think it's central. There was a time. Uh, Early on in the effort to control tobacco where the only justification for raising taxes was that uh, cigarette smoking produced a negative social cost and each cigarette package should uh, bear the full weight. In technical economic language, it was uh, internalizing the social cost of of smoking. Only later did it become clear that when you raise the price of cigarettes, you had an impact on on smoking behavior. There was some question about this, because nicotine actually is addictive. And the the question was, if you raise the price of cigarettes, will uh, consumption go down, even though people have an addiction to nicotine? And the evidence became very, very strong. It's incontrovertible, I would say, that uh, raising taxes cuts smoking. Uh, When New York City, uh, under Mayor Bloomberg, raised the pack of cigarettes uh, by taxes a few years ago. A pack of cigarettes in New York, somewhere between 11 and $12, uh, basically because of, of local taxes. He said, the goal of this tax is to raise re- no revenue. The goal of this tax is to, su- is to suppress uh, consumption. And the evidence is that it has had a very marked impact on smoking in New York. Uh, the, the problem, of course, is that most taxes on cigarettes are local. So New York has among the highest taxes on cigarettes uh, in the country. And there are places in the country where the cigarette taxes are uh, less, than, less than a dollar a pack makes a huge difference. Some places you can buy cigarettes at 4 bucks, and in New York it's $12. Uh, a recent study in New York showed that poor people in New York who are smokers uh, spend up to 30% of their disposable income on cigarettes now because of the price of cigarettes. So I think it works. I think it's very clear. The politics of enacting a tax in the name of uh, cigarette smoking reduction uh, is very local, and clearly in places where the tobacco industry has more power, more influence, those taxes have a hard uh, road to go. Now, of course, one of the things that might happen, given the fiscal crisis the United States is facing, is that in the name of of closing the fiscal gap, cigarette taxes might be, uh, as a form of a sin tax, might be a... uh, an acceptable thing that the Congress would, would consider. Uh, it would kill, in a way, kill two birds with one stone it would raise revenue, and it would uh, reduce smoking and therefore have an impact on uh, the overall cost of the new health care scheme, which now pretty clearly is going to go into effect. Uh, the one thing that I think one has to consider when one thinks about taxes is these taxes are by definition regressive. They fall most heavily on people with least disposable income. That's true of all sales taxes. The social demography of smoking in the United States now is very, very uh, skewed. People with more income, more education, smoke less. People with less education, less income, smoke more. So raising cigarette taxes... uh, And we have to be clear about this. Raising cigarette taxes in the name of uh, fiscal stability or in the name of public health, those taxes are going to fall most heavily on the poor. And the ultimate policy question is, should we burden the poor with an extra tax that, in the long run, if it works, will save their lives, but in the short run, will make their lives more difficult because they're the product that they consume daily has become much more expensive. But it goes without question that a, uh, a, uh, an excise tax as part of a grand bargain of raising the income of the U.S. government in time of deficit is something that should be on the legislative agenda in this next several months.
0: Thank you, Dr. Baer.
1: Thank you.